Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on Friday the 4th of February 2011. I always start off by suggesting to newcomers to look into the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com and you can help yourself from the audios that are up there. There's hundreds of them to choose from and hopefully I can give you shortcuts to understanding this big picture of the system in which you live and how it runs and how it really runs as opposed to how it's projected to you via the media and your education and uh, it might save you quite a few years of your life from going round in circles and going off into odd tangents to get the truth. It's a difficult system. It's designed that way, of course, but um, we're brought up to be fairly honest and to believe what we're told, and it never occurs to people that the media is there as an essential arm of what they call governance these days, governance as, as opposed to government. It's an essential arm. And it certainly is. It gives you your daily reality. So help yourself to those audios. We're at it too. You can buy the books and discs I have for sale or donate to me. And you'll find it how at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. From the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can use a personal check to order. You can also use an international postal money order. From the U.S. to Canada, you can use cash. Some people send cash. And uh, PayPal. Use a PayPal button on the website and follow it with an email with a name, address and order and I'll get it out to you. Same across the rest of the world, you have got the addition of Western Union, uh, which is direct wire transfer for very fast transfer. Uh, tell it, there's also MoneyGram, which does the same thing. It's a bit cheaper, I think. And uh, MoneyGram gives you the option of posting a check off instead. They'll give you the check and that's a lot cheaper still, of course. As I say, PayPal as well for ordering. Just use the nation button and follow it with an email with a name, address and order and I'll get it out to you. Now remember too, there's transcripts on all these sites you'll see listed in the com site for print up as well and if you want them in English and if you want them in other languages, go into alanwattsentinel.eu and take your pick from the choice offered there. Well, as I say, this is a big system we're living in. It didn't just develop overnight. It's always really been this way and uh, I actually think years ago that even uh, when you move to nations and go through nations and change citizenship and governments do these transactions between them, that's what they actually do with your name, your official name or your legal name and all that kind of stuff. However, they're, all they're doing is transferring ownership of who's got the right to tax you, who owns you basically, and that's really what it is. Uh, nothing comes from Trump to the government. They don't create money. Uh, they just simply take money. And it's so funny to listen to them talking about creating jobs and all the rest of it. Government can't create anything except debt because it's so corrupt to begin with. It's utterly corrupt. But they use the, the, the mob that they rule over, you see, uh, on behalf of someone else, of course. But, but they use the mob to, to create all this, this uh, wealth, which they take off you. And then they loan it out to other countries on behalf of their masters. 
as sort of banking loans, you might say. And no one's ever explained why governments are in the business of being bankers as well, to lend money, your money, to other countries, and often write off the debt. However, they've written you down too as a guarantors, so you've got to pay it back again to them. I mean, it's just an astonishing system we live in. And it's, it's really in the open if you look for it. It's all out there. It's just that people don't bother because the media doesn't tell them to. If the media tells you to be upset about some woman who's lost her home somewhere, everyone is, and they're all, it's on television all day long, stuff like that. But if they don't tell you what's really happening in the world, then we don't worry about it. We don't know about it. We're ignorant of it. And if the media does mention it, makes no fuss over it, we make no fuss either. It's that simple. So Brzezinski was quite right when he said that the public will be unable to reason for themselves. They'll expect the media to do the reasoning for them. That's already happened quite some time ago, to be honest with you. And I've gone through books in the past. Actually, I'll be back after this break and see the music coming in. Hi folks, we're back and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Uh, I was talking about obedience to authority. It's an excellent subject in fact and it's a, it's a very, very uh, long history in writing really because the authorities or the system, call it what you will, ha- have always been interested in different peoples across the world and I was astonished to go into the writings of even uh, economists in the 1800s and before in fact for the British Empire, who went across the world, and they literally, just like they do today with anthropologists and ethnologists and all the rest of it, they put them in there and study the publics, and they also bring in troops and have little wars with them here and there, or shut them off their land, which was very common, and they they found out, they kept lists of, of, of the, the traits of each character trait of the people, just how much they'd take to see how passive they were, or aggressive they were, and they still do this today. They still, your governments still do this today. They have lists of um, just how far they can go with each population type. And it's quite interesting when you get into all the different works done for, uh, and often by the major uh, universities in the UK and the US. It's quite uh, fascinating indeed to, to see just how far they know they can push any particular country through taxation or, or so on. That's why they're so confident as they bring in this so-called wonderful austerity program of post-consumerism, that's really what they mean by it, and where they tax most of the money that you used to spend, used to have in your pocket and you spend on whatever you wanted or whatever you needed, you won't have that anymore because it'll be taxed off you for services and so on. That's what austerity is really all about in the post-consumer society. And um, they know exactly how far to push and how quickly to push each different category and group and so on. And they even have lists of the most passive nations and the countries that have most obedience to authority uh, listed to quite fascinating stuff. And yet it's all the same system across the world, just different rates for different countries or peoples. And uh, because we're all run basically via the United Nations today, that's another front again for the global elites. And I've gone through the history of the setting up of the League of Nations and the United Nations and, of course, uh, they're boast upon it, about it in their own websites at the Council of Foreign Relations or Chatham House for their parent, their, their granddaddy, really, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. 
So you should go into these sites and really, if you want to know your histories, you'll find it in there. Mind you, it's like Orwell said, there's the inner party and outer party, and what they give for the outer party, that's you, what they make accessible to you is the low-level stuff. The inner party, you've got to have your, your special number to get in, etc., uh, because that's where the secret stuff and the real agenda is taking place. But that's how it is. And when I first came to Canada, and I went down through the States as well, I was surprised, and I've mentioned this years ago on radio, how how the buildings seem to be thrown up so quickly. And uh, they're, they're basically uh, wooden houses with, with some kind of siding on. And now it's all plastic, of course, that crumbles in the sun. But it's supposed to be better, and that's how Sears sold it. However, you, you find that uh, they were thrown up, and there were cables all over the, the, the rooftops and above the rooftops and just strung across and often almost sweeping high trucks that would go past them. And I, I, I got the impression right off the bat, I said, this is so temporary. Everything is temporary here. It's not meant to, to be permanent. They didn't build everything of bricks. They didn't put slate roofs on that last for hundreds of years. They put on these silly little things from the byproducts of the petrochemical industry that, uh, uh, that disintegrate under the sun and you have to replace them every few years. But everything was so temporary, and it was meant to be that way, of course, because these guys literally had it planned before you were born, before your parents or grandparents were born, just how long each area would last. They knew that they had to uh, allow people to travel, to, to create economy, and uh, they wanted commerce, and that's why they gave the, the car in the first place, first to the U.S., whereas in Britain it was heavily restricted for a long time. And I knew then, too, that eventually, as time went on, the years went on, uh, these temporary places would be removed because I went into the United Nations sites years ago and saw their plans for for stopping all the urbanization, as they called it, the urban sprawl. They always use sprawl, nasty negative word, you see, which they attach to urban. That's that's how they do it in psycholinguistics for you, to change your attitudes without even knowing it. They call it urban sprawl, meaning eventually these people would be gradually pushed into the inner city, which always was a plan, and now it's under Millennium Project and Agenda 21. That's what's happening across the world. And we're right in the stage now where you don't have to drive anymore as far as you're concerned. They want you off the roads. And they've already said in their own writings, even from the United Nations, I've read them on the air, uh, that eventually there'll only be about 3% will live on the rural areas and they will be very, very rich people. In other words, they'll price everyone else off with the, the price of gasoline and high taxes for your car and that kind of stuff. Quite easy to do. And back in the, I think it was the late the 80s, they brought in Maurice Strong. At that time he was working at the World Bank. This little uh, gnome of a character, strange character, uh, that Rockefeller picked up and shot to stardom, you know, made him work the oil fields as overseer, get an idea of economy and how to run the cattle. That's all of us. And they brought him over to Ontario and Bob Ray was in. And Bob Ray uh, was a, a kind of further left than Marx. And... Um, Bob Ray uh, and Maurice Strong uh, worked together to sell off uh, what, the, what the Canadians had built here, the Ontarians had built in Canada, and that was their power supply, hydroelectric and so on. They also had nuclear, and um, they privatized it. So they brought in Maurice Strong to do that. Eventually, after about a year, it was found out he was getting a salary from the United Nations and a salary from, from the, the, the Ontario government 
So he he succumbed and actually only took a dollar per week, supposedly, uh, while he was sitting on the board of the, the power plants here, the hydroelectric companies, and uh, and continued to privatize it. At the time, too, in the newspapers, he said, we must start putting in alternative power plants for big essential businesses and even the few factories that were left were already moving to China back then, I think. And um, he said eventually down the road, he said, he's recently saying that there'll be massive cutbacks in electrical supply. So whatever reason they give for for it today is nonsense. You see, it's planned to go down the hill this way. That's why they haven't fixed the roads for years and years and years. It's because it's planned that way. It's planned that way. But uh, he was right, and I said that was in the 80s, and sure enough, once he'd done his job and, and privatized it, which really I've, I watched my whole life too in Britain and elsewhere in Europe, the same con game, the public would, would pay for their infrastructure, their water supplies, sewage supplies, electric supplies, they'd build it all up through their tax money, and of course at the time they'd always say, this is yours, this is the British, or this is Canadians, or this is, and, and even Pierre Trudeau in Canada came on and said, this is for Canadians, this great plan. And keep your lights on all the time. It'd be so cheap, cheap, cheap. He says, and um, they had they knew darn well once it was up and running. Give it enough years, they would then privatise it and hand it over to their buddies for peanuts, and that's what they did. Now, they're cutting back in China. I mentioned that the other day for their heating, so they've been told to freeze for the rest of the winter in some of the cities. And in the states, of course, they're giving rolling blackouts in uh, Texas. Uh, which I've been doing in some parts of Europe for quite a few years now. And yesterday in the mail I got from uh, this privatized company now that runs the electricity here, that was just told us to be more efficient and all the rest of it, of course. Well, in public-private deals, we pay for all their upkeep, you see, and upgrades, while they rake in the profit. That's how public-private works. And it says electricity prices are changing. Find out why. And now listen to this. this is, see, America has to learn how the British Commonwealth countries uh, put things over to the public. You've got to learn this trick. It says, how much will I pay? This is in the first page inside. Over the next 20 years, including taxes and other charges, electricity bills are projected to rise about 3.5% per year, right? However, largely because of investments being made in the short term to bring on new energy supply and upgrade electricity infrastructure, electricity bills are expected to increase by about 7.9% per year, over the next five years. That's you've got to learn this trick here. And so you're stuck. You need Monty Python to figure this one out, you see. What's the point in seeing them for the next 20 years in one part and then t- telling you a different reality in the other? You know, you get this is a very schizoid thing you do. Most folk read that, can't make any sense of it, and just forget it. And, and that's how it's meant to be, actually. It's, it's not done by accident. So here's a private company uh, jacking up the prices uh, from the public, of course, uh, is, a, is basically almost like a tax increase to, to be given to them so that they can maintain their private company uh, so that they can soak us for more money and more money. So we're paying for their maintenance and their upkeep and their upgrading for a private company. Hmm? Not bad deal, eh, when you get these, these deals going. And so we're going to thank Maurice Strong for all of that, of course. Uh, so you have to finish with, with the destroying Ontario here. He went back to the UN and then they put him over to China. Where is a communist ant is buried? But anyway, that's how it's done. And uh, it's a good trick to learn. Now, 
in the U.S. it says here in this article I'm about to put up on the website after the show, it says, Snow chaos, just one more sign of crumbling U.S. infrastructure. You see, this is, I saw this happening for years. They weren't boring to repair anything. Same in Canada. I've got, I've got electricity poles here that are held up by other electricity poles. The wires hold them up. Some of them are just broken. They haven't been fixed for years. They're not going to be either. It says a monster snowstorm hitting the U.S. this week may be a random act of nature, but the resulting gridlock will likely unleash a more predictable stream of criticism over downed power lines, airport closures, and lack of snowplows. State cities and private power companies have already come under intense pressure uh, since December for their handling of a series of major winter storms that have struck northeastern regions. If only we could fashion a large wall or blade and attach it to a big truck and somehow push the snow away, the New Yorker magazine quipped this month, mocking New York's lack of snowplows during its last major storm in December. See, they've cut back on everything. You see, same across the board. The U.S. is far from alone in struggling with winter madness, but the snow chaos is just one small aspect of a wider crisis of a crumbling infrastructure across the U.S., a problem that is more uniquely American. And I'll read the rest of this article, too, because it goes into the, the crumbling infrastructure and the fact that they're not bothering to repair it. Back with more after this. Hi, folks. We're back, and we're cutting through the matrix, talking about the crumbling infrastructure, which is all designed a long time ago to crumble, and of course they didn't intend to maintain it much longer. And that's where we are today in this age of austerity. When the roads go and so on, you won't have to travel on them anyway, because travel will be restricted to to VIPs and important vehicles only. And that's in the Agenda 21 uh, site at the United Nations there, if you went to it and looked through it. And it says here in this article, going back to it, it says, um, from the breaches levels in New Orleans after 2005's Hurricane Katrina, which was also a fact that the, the boom was, was built too low, and uh, all the engineers knew that and recommended to hire, but they weren't wanting to put the money out to it. They wanted to put money in their pockets. To a major bridge collapse in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 2007, there have been signs for years that much of the country's infrastructure is in urgent need of repair. It says that the infrastructure used to be the best, but our lead has slipped, uh, President Barry Obama said last week in his annual State of the Union speech to Congress. Obama pointed to finger spending in, uh, to higher spending in Europe, Russia and China to repair roads, bridges, rail, and even extend high-speed Internet access. He cited the American Society of Civil Engineers, which gave U.S. infrastructure a D-grade, one letter above failing in 2009. It's not bad that you're building roads in China for them. That's quite nice of you. Europe, on average, spends about 5% of its economic output on improving infrastructure. China spends about 9%, while the U.S. spends only 2%, according to a report by the U.S. Treasury Department last October. Tackling crumbling infrastructure is one of the few areas where Obama might find common ground with conservative... Well, he's going into politics nonsense again. I'll skip this part here. Because, you see, understand that it's designed this way. Uh, you don't have a nation anymore. People don't have, that was just declared by the head of the EU Parliament. And that's, he's speaking for the whole world. It was ended in the nation state. They're selling off Britain piecemeal, you know, roads and all. So, uh, basically, 
uh, is designed to go this way. As the, as the withering away of the states is what uh, uh, Marx and Lenin called it. That was to happen towards this end when they merged in a new system. They merged with capitalism to bring out a system not quite capitalist, not quite communist, but that was socialist with an elitist bunch above them. The socialists have no problem with multi-trillionaires running the show above them. They have no problems at all. Mind you, neither did the communists. Anyway, it says here, um, infrastructure is the backbone of any economy and its decline has alarmed businesses and public officials alike. That sparked a rear coalition between the country's top labor unions and business associations in the aftermath of Obama's speech on January 26. So, as I say, it's designed to go this way, but it's happening across uh, what was called the civilized world because we're going down into uh, uh, anything but a civilized world. As we go through this big shake-up, you know, change is good. They, they got to get their change through to get their, to the year 2050, when most of us will be gone. There'll be few children born in the West, except for the immigration. immigration. That's all that's keeping it going right now. Uh, and because uh, everyone's become sterilized, you see, once you're here. It doesn't take long. So that's the way it's supposed to go. And we're just, as I say, we're just the eggshells as they make the big omelette. You can't make the omelette without breaking eggs, said Mr. Rockefeller, of course. And the Pentagon, too, it says, the Pentagon reports billions of dollars in contractor fraud. They, they print this every year, and um, nothing happens about it. I think last year they lost $50 billion somewhere. They couldn't find it. And nobody bothered to look, mind you. The Pentagon paid hundreds of billions of dollars to defense contractors engaged in criminal or civil fraud, in some cases paying the companies after they were convicted, according to a new Defense Department report. At least 91 contractors holding contracts worth $270 billion were the subject of civil fraud judgments and in some cases criminal fraud convictions as well, many of which resulted in fines, suspensions or debarments. Even so, Defense Department contracting officers still assigned $4.9 billion worth of work with these companies after the fraud was uncovered, the report said. The contractors identified in the report include such blue-chip entities as Boeing, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Pratt & Whitney, IBM, and even the Yale Medical School. Well, they're all part of the military-industrial complex, including the Yale Medical School. The Pentagon says its own sloppy bookkeeping. Oh, it's just sloppy, you see, this, this, you know. Missing records and inadequate training of acquisition officials were to blame for the mess. That's all it was, you see. They always gave you this rubbish. It's just bureaucrats that, that, that slip up, you know, and on banana peels and stuff like that. That's what we're supposed to believe. But the money goes into a lot of pockets because you understand once you get to a certain level in this system, in Britain and in the Commonwealth countries, it's, it's, it's more apparent. Once you get above a certain lordship level, you are not touchable by the laws. In fact, the laws don't really cover you anymore. You can do as you wish. Do what thou wilt is a whole of the law. That literally is what their motto at the top. You're allowed to plunder the general public and get away with it. You understand? You have no idea of, of the gulf of how the elite are trained and raised and how they view life compared with the ones that they rule over. The farm. They're farmers, you see. We're farmed, like Charles Fort said. We're farmed. That's what we are. And your only inter- the only interest they have in, in the cattle are as, as, as how much you can produce in your lifetime in taxes and so on for, and that they reap off. That's all they care about. Really, that's all they care about. 
And they give you all the music industry and the culture industry and all the little stuff with little songs to keep you happy and whistling away as you go through your life, never figuring out what on earth's going on. And in this big global plantation, they're starting to put the fences up now. That's what 9-11 helped to do as well. Put the fences up so the cattle can't just wander back and forth and wherever they want to go to graze. That's all, that's all happening. That's why Harper's down right now pushing the next part of the Peace and Prosperity Partnership, which is more tighter border control and only certain people can travel. That's what it's coming down to, by the way, right now as we speak. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back. This is Cutting Through the Matrix, talking about the corruption, which they publish every year. At least they publish it every year in the U.S. uh, for the Pentagon, at least. And it says here, at least $682 million was paid in error to 30 companies. How can you pay $682 million in error eh, to 30 companies that had been convicted of criminal fraud, according to the report, including $29.6 million to Hurley Industries and Electronics Manufacturers and $66 million to AEY Inc., a military surplus and sporting goods firm? The number of fraudulent contractors identified in the report is relatively small. Some 120 companies out of the 235,000 contractors that work for the Defense Department. Their ones are smarter, that's why. But the dollar amounts are, in, are significant, continuing to be on taxpayers and the military's combat readiness. It says here, military contracting fraud, which first played General George Washington during the Revolutionary War. And that's true, too. It's quite a history to the to the corruption. Benjamin Franklin had to go in front of a hearing when he came back from being the ambassador to France. He was a, he was a, he was the, the carpet bagger, basically, the, the money boys. And um, he, his job over there was to get the loans from France to keep the war going. And uh, when you go into the French records, it's just astonishing how he lived, this little simple country boy as they try to portray him, uh, with this kind of palace he was put up in, and, and horse teams and, and valets and, and his wine cellar, which they stocked with, with hundreds of bottles every, every week at parties all the time there. And then, of course, he was funneling money off into the site, which they never recovered. So when he came back, they had to have a little inquiry, a little Masonic inquiry there, amongst other boys to see what to do about it, and he got a little slap on the wrist. And then they were told, too, you can't bring your relatives into the new government, and he tried to get his son in Temple, his name was uh, right off the bat, too, and they turned that down. If he hadn't been too blatant with it on the take, they probably let let, let him in and had a job there. But that's the way it, it goes, you see, with the real... You understand, even when it comes to factions and fighting... And so it's just a matter of fighting over the hair to see who ends up owning you. That, that's all it is, really. So for all those people who are in Egypt following all these professional revolutionaries that have been sent in there, just remember that, that what will come out of this will be nothing that you're actually expecting. And you'll, you'll fight in vain for this odd thing called freedom and democracy that no one's ever had, uh, as far as I can ever see. We've never had democracy. We're run by an authoritarian system. 
and uh, once in a while they'll give you a few years when they really need to build you up and have you producing for them and a great tax base so they can have their wars or give your money abroad for the next place they want to take over. Uh, they'll let you have a, keep a little bit more seed to yourself, like a mouse, you know, like a, a, a lab mouse. You keep more seed to yourself and you think it'll never end. And then 20 years down the road, they pull the plug. They don't, they no longer have to leave you as much in your pocket. And when the seed vanishes, of course. So that's where we are today. That's really the reality of the world. And even ancient times too, if you compare the systems of ancient Persia with today, it really isn't that much different. They had their own bureaucracies and their big pashas at the top and the whole bit. And gave themselves wonderful titles, honorable this and, and uh, you know, etc. Just like they do today, of course, honorable so-and-so has spoken. And uh, we live in a system where ritual is so important. They love to put on big shows for the public where it's a queen in a golden carriage, just like something out of Disneyland uh, amongst all the poverty. Or, 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 you know, even the Pope used to do it at one time. He used to carry him around in this, this big golden beer while these guys uh, down below him uh, on, resting this stuff on their shoulders and running with them on the trot. They, they did that right up through the 30s and 40s, I think, until it, it became too ostentatious and it looked kind of ridiculous for this day and age. However, that's what they give the public, massive rituals of wealth, 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 lavish wealth and well-clothed people, well-fed people, and the best of silk and all the rest of it. And we all stand on the sidelines with our cap in hand, you know, with the holes in it. And, um, and we grovel at them. That's a sad thing to say, but that's how people behave generally uh, when they're in the presence of incredible wealth. It's a sad, sad thing. Sad thing. Terrible. But it's psychology too. Uh, as I say, I've mentioned before that, that um, uh, star suckers, you already understand, go and see the Star Suckers documentary. Not the porno one. There's a porno one apparently called the same thing. But so there's, there's a Star Suckers documentary. Excellent expose on how people react in the presence of what they see as power. And the chance even to, to try to get into that kind of business of celebrity. Um, and how they grovel and even give their children to strangers who say that they'll make them into stars. It's quite something to watch the people. It's so predictable and sad, isn't it? Very, very sad. Another thing I was going to mention too is that just we're, we're much in the we're getting to the stage now, gradually, and we will do once the, the food gets up to a very expensive, very expensive level. We're getting kind of like where, where Germany, where Berlin and Germany was uh, just prior to World War Two, or into the twenties and thirties, where those who were stinking rich, you see. And there was a lot of them, too, that owned all the buildings through the cities and rented them out at extortionate levels. Uh, they didn't know not to, 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 they didn't know to tone down uh, their lavishness and, and, as I say, their ostentation. They, they can't, they can't, they've got to show off how ostentatious they are and wealthy they are uh, and, and amongst all the rabble and the peasants and, and with the holes and the shirts and stuff like that. They don't know to tone it down. They don't know. And that's kind of where we are today. And that's why they were really heavily attacked, of course, once the Nazi regime came in. That's one of the reasons. But it says here in an article, just like Britain, which is a shambles now with incredible taxation. And I read the reports of how many folk died last year of, of, of the cold. And it was an incredible 140 to 180,000 folk died in their homes because they couldn't afford the fuel. It'll be worse this year because they've really jacked all the prices up. 
Anyway, it says, One Hyde Park, the world's most expensive apartments, opens its doors for the first time. This is in the middle of, of the massive depression that they've plunged the world into with their, their, these guys that speculate, you know, and uh, using, and then we have to bail out the banks and all the rest of it. The world's most expensive residential apartments at One Hyde Park have been officially unveiled today by the colorful property duo, the Candy Brothers. Isn't that sweet, eh? Candy Brothers. It says, A, a valet... A wine cellar, a private spa, a panic room, that's for the mob in case they ever attack you, and home cooking from a uh, team of award-winning chefs. If these are on your list of must-have creature comforts, then here's the apartment for you. A total of 86 flats at one Hyde Park as apartments, thought to be the most expensive, expensive residential development in the world, have been officially unveiled by the property due the Candy Brothers. Prices at the highly anticipated Knightsbridge project start at £6.5 million for a simple one-bedroom apartment and soar to £140 million for one of the penthouses, averaging about £6,000 a square foot. The prices are higher than any other residential space, according to property experts. And so the city grandees included Lord Fink, uh, head, the hedge fund guru, well, they always make money off money. They don't create anything, they just make money off of money. Ken Kostoff Lazards and Bernie Ecclestone of F1 joined international investors and celebrities, including Gary Lineker, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and Theo Fennell at the launch. It's the same thing as, as Germany, it really is. The project is a joint venture between the Candies, uh, Gurneyside based uh, vehicle, G- CPC Group, and Water Knights, a company owned by the Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Hamad bin Jassim bin Jar Al Tani, as a mouthful. The launch is being carefully watched as a litmus test for the financial health of the world's super rich and their appetite for London in the wake of the financial crisis. They don't know how to tone it down, do they? They just can't do it. You understand, we're going right back to the Middle Ages. If we're not already there already. And just to, to add this onto it too, um, they tried to get a bills, bills, they worked on bills based in, in a, an office in France for years with the European Union bunch and under the World Trade Organization. The U.S. was involved too, to, so that companies could come in and pay the, what they would pay people in their own countries as wages. And of course, eventually it snuck out in the public and it's, it was put down, but it was, it, they put it on the back burner. Here's a bill going through Parliament right now. Minimum Wage Amendment Bill, 2010 to 11. Private Members Bill, it says here, by Mr. Christopher Chope or Copey. Uh, it says here, uh, the bill was presented to Parliament on 5th of July, 2010. It's known as the first reading and there's no debate on the bill at this stage. It's a private member's bill and they're often not printed until close to a second reading debate. If the text of the bill is not available, it gives you the stuff how to get a hold of it. Summary, a bill to enable the national minimum wage to be varied. That means abolished, folks. Because you can't have a national minimum wage to be varied to reflect local labor market conditions and for connected purposes. In other words, someone wants to come in and invest with the peasants over here, uh, then in this little area there, you know, you see, uh, in England or Scotland or wherever, They'll have to, uh, they'll, they'll demand, they give them the wages they would, they decide they want to pay them. That's it. That's what this literally means. A bill to enable the national minimum wage to be varied to reflect global labor, labor market conditions and for connected purposes. Explain connected purposes. Hmm? Isn't that something, eh? Isn't that something? 
So uh, that's where we're going today. That's where we are today, folks. It's, I can remember when Maggie Thatcher was in and she was interviewed and the interviewer, I think it was a Man Alive series or something, but he, the guy said to her, he says, do you realize you're turning Britain into the old system where the, 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 the wealthy came out of their biggest states and, and rode through in their carriages and, and the people, people stood outside the gates doffing their, their hats and bowing? And she says, yes, and so what? That's what she said. Yes. And you think these folk are kidding. And it doesn't matter if you vote left wing, right wing, because she could only have done it, said that and done that. If, if, she couldn't have done it if Labour hadn't had years and years and years of playing their communist games in Britain and dishing out the, uh, the money that was supposed to go to the public, uh, dishing it out across the world for other projects. You know, international socialism. They all work together because they're not their own boss, right or left. There's a head to that bird there that owns the wings. Always remember there's a head there, and it's quite something. Now, there's a couple of callers on the line. There's Joe from California. Are you there, Joe? Hello, Joe. Uh, Alan, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Just wanted to call in and make an observation. Um, Listening to you, you've jarred my memory uh, about things I've, moments I've had in the past. One of them, you mentioned the fact that in back in 98, you mentioned the aerial spraying and how that began in earnest in that year. Yeah. Um, I just brought back a memory where it was back in 1999. I was with a friend, hadn't seen him in a while, and we were watching, we were about to go somewhere, we were watching something on television, and it was something, I can't remember what it was, but it was something kind of outlandish and risque I think and and we both kind of sat there and quietly watched it and then turned off the TV and he kind of commented to me he said do you get this feeling now it's like anything goes Mm -hmm. and that just kind of I don't know that kind of just came back to me the other day when you mentioned that about Mm -hmm. just the coincidence of the time frame and everything yeah anything goes absolutely you're dead on with anything goes and I'll tell you something too if they were geoengineering back then, I wonder if that's why they're getting so much storms and winter weather and all the rest of it across a good part of the Northern Hemisphere because uh, they're not going to tell you. They won't admit they're even spraying. And even when you're all standing as a group watching it, they'll still deny it. And so we're not doing that. You know? it, it, it does seem to be a hell of a coincidence. Um, <laughs> anyway, just thought I'd, uh, I'd bring, up, bring that up with you. And uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling. I'll keep listening. But you're right, though, that's how they do it. It's, it's, uh, it's like you can actually sense yourself going through as though an, an order had been issued in high levels for the next phase. And you're dead on. That's what they actually do. They have their global meetings, and they've got it all planned out in advance. And it's time for this. It's time for, it's time for the crash when the grave is a crash. I'm sure they had planned years before. They knew exactly what they were doing. When they deregulated the, the oversight committees, and all the investment companies and speculators, uh, they knew darn well uh, that they'd go to town with their fake, uh, you know, bubbles and all the rest of it, selling like crazy, which they did. They knew this. That's why they had oversight committees. And they all did it at the same time, Britain, uh, the U.S., Canada, all the countries did it at the same time. And even Greenspan came out when he was in, and he gave on once and he says it's time for the investors to cool it. That's all he said, like, like some high king had spoken, you know, 
uh, they bring him on the stage and he says something, everybody would hold their breath and he'd make a sentence and it was all, all over the papers. And for a little while, they did cool it a little bit. And I was just telling you, don't be so blatantly greedy with your fake bubbles. That's what he was telling them. It wasn't time to crash the economy yet. They know exactly when they're going to crash it. I've mentioned before uh, that it's a prime um, tenet of um, economics that you never tell people, especially investors, bad news. And it mustn't come from a person in authority. If they do that, everyone panics and pulls their cash out. They got the President of the United States to come out, remember, and I mentioned it at the time, when they bring him out and tell you this crash is going to be worse uh, than the Great Depression. I mean, this was planned, folks. Everybody scrambled and panicked and all the rest of it to make sure that, that that's what happened. Otherwise, they would never have got him out to do that kind of stuff. That's not what they'd tell you. Their job is to lie to you all the time and tell you things are wonderful. That's what their job is, you know. But so that's how it goes. And um, now there's Tom from Wisconsin there. You there, Tom? I'm here, Alan. Can you hear me clearly? Yes, I can. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, I was just calling tonight because it just seems to me that um, even as I explain these things uh, that are going on to individuals, um, there's there's definitely a willful denial of of the progression. They think they tend they tend to want to argue with me that you know it's you know I'm I'm the one who's being antagonistic towards the system. I'm the one who's not complying, even though they don't say it like that. They're literally implying that because I don't go along is is why why the system is mm-hmm. you know bearing down on me with with all of its um, you know apparatus. Yeah. And uh, comment on that, if you will. It's a technique that's understood. It's, it's due to it's due to their conditioning. What you're seeing um, and hearing is the reaction of perfectly conditioned people. Remember, in brainwashing, for instance, that's taken, they call it taken, like an inoculation, when it's actually taken well, the last person to ever believe or know they're brainwashed is the victim themselves. They have no clue, and they'll fight you if you try to say that they're brainwashed and give them evidence. They will deny it to the end. And and you live in a society where scientific socialism has been taught through the schooling system, and that's a scientific technique. That's what Bertrand Russell talked about, and I've read his book on the air, parts of that book, where he goes through this technique. It's so perfect, he says, that even if if we can get the child young and, and get them into school, even kindergarten, he said, it doesn't matter what history, morals, or values the parents try to put across to their children. It will, it will be denied and, and tossed out, not completely ignored. It won't take on their children because the, the scientific indoctrination now, he said, is perfect. And that was back in the 1940s, he said that. Yeah. That's why. You've seen the perfectly conditioned. Yeah. But to hold on, we're back with more after this break. Hi, folks. We're back, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. I don't know if Tom's still there, is he? Is Tom still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. Anything to add to that? Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I was thinking during the break that one of the things that I always, and I always thought about the, the different characteristics of the system that we're all in, and I, I look at this as kind of a war of attrition, because as they move us all into the cities, uh, 
we're not going to be able to produce the things for ourselves. And that's, that's why there are crises, because there aren't people on, 100, on lots of 100 acres being able to burn their own, you know, their own trees and grow their own food and produce no. their own electricity yep. from the environment that they're in. Yeah. And uh, I'm actually moving to a farm myself because of what I see coming, and I want to survive through to the other side. Yeah. Uh, and people actually find it somewhat strange at times when I explain to them what I'm doing. There's no, yeah, don't, don't even worry about that. I wouldn't even worry about that, yeah. yeah. You have to do what you know is right for yourself, and, and um, it's, it's been the same in different times in the past, but people could come across and warn what was coming up. And folk wouldn't listen, and they paid heavily for it with their lives often. Uh, that that's going to happen again. When you're in a city, you're utterly, you're you're interdependent. You're depending upon that city to give you employment, bring in the food to the supermarkets, all the rest of it. And the whole city is one big business. It's a corporation. Remember, it has no um, feelings or care or empathy for anyone tossed out in the street because they've lost their job or they can't afford the rent or whatever. It, it's the most horrific, cold place there is in times of crisis and poverty, and you don't want to be there. Uh, you are crammed into this 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 brick uh, jungle, and uh, as I say, it's, it's an unnatural way to live in the first place. It's only meant to to do well in times when the economy is booming, and you go there for a few years, make some cash, and get out. Uh, but to, to live there permanently, it's a takedown system. And that's how it's going to be, actually, as they crowd folk into these cities. They're not going to upkeep them, repair them, or, or, or make more room to accommodate you. As I say, look at the Soviet story. Look at the one I put up last night, too, on communism. Look how they made the folk live there. They crammed 40 folk into a room sometimes. And that will come down eventually in times of crisis when they go the next step. They're going to collapse the economy two or three times. This isn't just a, a set that way. Probably three great shocks. And then we'll have all the big speeches made to us, how we've got to tighten our belts, pull together as one, uh, like a warfare scenario. They've already said that to the top levels, uh, that people perform best, do what they're told under a war scenario. And that's what they're going to say. We're all in it together. And uh, it's a form of communitarianism as this generation gradually dies off, you know, gets too old to party uh, and the young ones don't have any children, at least ones that are born alive. And... Um, and, and then, of course, it wasn't for the immigration. That's what they've said. That's why they've got massive immigration. This is because, because they need young people to work for the future, to pay off the national debt. That's been in all the papers. Can you believe that? And folk want to vote for the same governmental system that, that tells you uh, that, uh, that they're so s- <laughs> sunk in debt that it's your duty to keep them going, the same system. Oh, and folk do vote for it, too, you know. Yeah. It's... It's very psychopathic, Alan. It's very it, psychopathic, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and really, it's, it's because, as I say, yeah, as I say, it's because the elite, literally, you have to understand how they're trained, how they view you. They do see you as farm animals, honestly, like quaint little farm animals that they pass in the night overhead in their private jets, stuff like that. They have no idea. They don't even mix with you, and um, they live in a different reality, honestly. Uh, the public will never understand or believe that, but that's their tough luck. That's your tough luck. So I'll put all these links up tonight and a whole bunch of other ones too, with the rolling blackouts in Texas and how they've lowered the tax brackets in Britain to make everyone into a higher tax bracket <laughs> for more taxes. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>